Okay, we got that. Welcome to the LGBT workshop meeting. My name is Holly. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting. Hi, everyone. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic equipment be turned off. Even if you think it's off, please make sure. This session is being taped. All participants are required to sign the release form. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members that do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. Please remember OA members affiliated with related facilities or other 12-step programs are requested to speak on their recovery in the OA program today. An Ask a Basket will be circulating, circulated for the question and answer portion of this session. If there are any press in this room, please respect our anonymity by not taking any pictures, using a video camera, or using our full names. The format for this session is as follows. Three speakers will share for 20 minutes each, followed by questions and answers. An Ask It basket will be passed around. Please place your questions in the box for our panelists. The topic for this session is LGBT. Our first speaker is Dylan. Second speaker is Mary. Third speaker is Heather. There she is. Good. I know. I knew you would. <laughs> I will not draw questions. No. We're going to go like this. And I read all that ahead of time. So let, let's, hear our first, let's hear our first speaker, Dylan. Thanks. Hi, I'm Delyn. I'm a compulsive overeater. And hi. Um, and I should also add, I'm also a recovering anorexic slash uh, restrictor. And what kind of time warnings am I going to get? 20 minutes is your total time, and then 15 for you. Okay, perfect. Okay. Okay, perfect. Thank you. 10, 5, and 1. Can you do that? Uh huh. Okay, thanks. So hi again, I'm Delyn, and um, I'm nervous and excited to be here. Um, I feel it's kind of like a cosmic joke that I'm speaking at this meeting because this is like the scariest meeting for me to speak at. So um, it's sort of ironic that this is the first time that I've spoken at a convention and the first time that I'm speaking um, on on the topic of um, it being an LGBTQ meeting. Um, so I'll just kind of share a little bit about what qualifies me to be here. Um, so I'm a compulsive overeater. I come from a family of compulsive overeaters. Um, we're the kind of compulsive eaters that can't say no to things like ice cream and cookies and extra food. Um, and it was sort of a family disease and it was a disease that, there was not um, a lot of hope around. So my mom in my family is the like primary identified compulsive eater, and um, and she had tried a lot of things, and they hadn't worked for her. And so there was just this sense of like, you know, this is just who we are, and there's no, you know, there's nothing to be done about it. So that part of my disease is kind of the most. I think it's the most um, basic and core part of my illness, and it's also. Um, the 
maybe the last part that I've gotten recovery around because I also come from a family where there's some um, pretty hardcore restriction. And my father, being both a compulsive eater and an anorexic, had a spiritual diet. So if any of you are familiar with what it's like to be in a community where there's both a spiritual, you know, everybody has a spiritual solution in that community, and they prescribe diets to you, like don't eat this if you're this body type, and these kinds of foods are less spiritual than other foods. And so um, so I learned pretty early on to um, that food could be restricted. And that in restricting certain kinds of food, you could have a closer shot at being nearer to God. Um, And so the first food that I restricted was meat. Um, In my community, that was considered, you know, a spiritual choice to make. And so I started doing that at about age um, 10 or so. And I really did it to impress my science teacher who thought it was an admirable thing. And I was like, well, I can do that. Um, and so I, I kind of have these two dual, um, aspects to my eating disorder. And it was tricky to really name either one of them because I was able to restrict a lot of things and I couldn't control certain myself around certain kinds of food. So, um, so that qualifies me in spades for being here. And um, and the way that that relates to my sexuality is kind of complicated, but I'm going to talk about that here. Um, so I also am a sexual abuse survivor, and, um, and that happened pretty early on. And so it caused a lot of confusion for me around sex and sexuality. And, um, and I also am attracted to people of both genders. So that caused a lot of confusion because I figured, well, I'm attracted to guys, so I must not be attracted to girls. And, um, I could, and I could kind of like get away with that for a while. So just to like, I guess to, you know, start from the beginning, my food restriction behavior started in sixth grade. And it started around the time that I was attracted to other girls in my um, class. And I was rejected by them. And so I thought that I was just like this pariah, you know, on, on earth. And, um, and that kind of tied into my eating disorder because then what I wanted to do was be really attractive. And, the, you know, the models for attractiveness in the town that I grew up and in the literature that I was reading, like the young adult literature I was reading, was um, this, like, teen, like, young teen series with these two really blonde, really thin, kind of rich – twins who had like matching rich handsome boyfriends and I was like well that's like the solution (laughs) that I mean literally like that was my solution like and um and so I came from um my solution to like how to make myself happier was I just need to have a flat stomach like at all costs and um you know I'm a pretty like normal body weight I've been a pretty normal body weight this whole time but my um the genetic lineage I come from like the women carry their weight on their stomach so that was not an option like having a quote unquote flat stomach was not an option in my like genetic makeup but it was a, a thing that I um, aspired towards and worked really hard towards and hid because I also knew as like a, like a liberated feminist young woman that that wasn't cool. You know, it wasn't cool to be starving yourself. It wasn't cool to want to have a body that looked like other bodies, et cetera. So, um, 
So, you know, to fast forward a little bit and how this ties into my OA recovery is I um, was pretty miserable and I became more and more miserable. And, um, and when I graduated college, I finally had like an income and I had the liberty to do a lot of spiritual diets. And so I kind of struck out on my own and started, um, you know, I have a pretty like, uh, out there spirituality. And so I was going to some pretty out there spiritual and diet, like advice people. And, um, and so I be, I, started restricting things like carrots, which were supposed to be like a low vibration. And, um, I only ate red potatoes if I ate a potato because that was like a higher vibration food and things like that. And so by the time I got into OA, I was, um, I was really depressed. I was very, very isolated. Um, I had broken up with someone I had been with a guy I had been dating for four years and had no inner, um, I had like no inner compass for how to live life as an adult. And I just became more miserable and more isolated and, um, and just didn't know what to do. And so like by the grace of God, I started working with a therapist who happened to be an OA member and she 12 stepped me into another program. Um, I think she kind of knew I wasn't ready for OA. Um, and so I kind of came in through another program into this program and, um, And I was, um, eating like maybe one and a half, two meals a day and had had a real, like true first step experience when I started working with this therapist and she told me, you know, you need to eat three meals a day. And I told her, I said, that's impossible. Who has time for that? Like, like seriously, who I was living in New York city. It's a hard place to live. You know, like you leave your house in the morning and you're gone for like 10 or 12 hours and you're just kind of out there on the city streets going from, you know, thing to thing. And, um, and so I just couldn't like conceptualize how I would have enough like organization and um, st- just even like strength to do what it needed, what I had to do in order to actually eat and prepare and plan for three meals a day. And so my first step really happened when I tried to follow her suggestion and I realized that I couldn't. And that was like a huge eye-opening experience for me because up until that point, I hadn't thought that I had a problem that was beyond my control. Like I hadn't thought that I was powerless over undereating. I just knew that I was powerless over other things um, like these, you know, fancy foods they sell in delis in New York and you can buy at the checkout. And, um, and so I was kind of, I was on my knees in that respect, but, um, hadn't started really fine, hadn't found a solution yet. So when I found a way, um, I found, started working with a sponsor and I, Personally, like my story was that I had to also work with a medical professional because I didn't trust any of you to actually give me advice about my food. I'd grown up with a mom who'd given me a lot of advice about food and none of it had worked and it hadn't worked for her either. So I didn't, you know, like I didn't trust that any other compulsive eater would actually be able to tell me something sane. So I went and found a medical professional and found a kind of balanced eating plan and started working towards abstinence in that first kind of uh, leg of my journey, which was recovering from undereating, by um, 
aiming towards, shooting towards three meals a day. And I knew I was so like anorexic at the time that I actually – I knew it wasn't possible to eat three meals a day. Like I physically couldn't force myself to do it. So I started counting days from the day that I started working towards that. Um, and the way that that relates to um, my sexuality is that uh, – Right at the same time that I came into OA, um, I also came into a, a, a program. Soon after starting OA, um, I started working a program around money. Um, and the reason for that was that I actually couldn't afford to buy more food. <laughs> like I literally couldn't afford it ba- um, with the um, the way that I was handling debt repayment at the time. So I came into that program and um, – I had the wherewithal to understand that I had some issues around sex and sexuality. And so I had Googled and found a 12-step program that dealt with sexuality. And... um, and so, like, pretty soon after attending some meetings in that program, I ran into a woman that I knew from... from, um, Well, actually not from OA, but from 12-step prior to that... And she started talking about – she introduced herself as being a um, sexual abuse survivor. And I just had this kind of uh, huge, like, eye-opening experience of knowing that if I copied what she had said, that I would just kind of lose it. So I didn't have, like, a a memory. I didn't have, like, a – like, I'd managed to repress everything. I just kind of went on this faith that if I – that – no, like knowing that I was having to move towards things that scared me and that 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 were like those words scared me. So I sort of jumped off the cliff with that and also ended up in a 12 step program around sexual abuse survivors. So I was kind of working three programs. And and I feel and that's important to say because of this next piece and how that relates to OA. So um, so. I so. Yeah, so I was going to these three different kinds of meetings and I was kind of trucking along on my OA recovery. And about six months into it, um, I realized that had a couple of like significant things happen. And one of them was that um, I, as an undereater, I was I was really having a hard time getting through my full meal. And what would happen is um, I would sit down to eat and I would have all of these feelings come up. And, um, I don't necessarily recommend this for anybody because the like conventional wisdom is usually that you should try to separate your emotional life from your food life and not like act out emotional stuff through your behaviors with food. But the only way that I could actually get through a meal was to literally have like a little baby temper tantrum, um, like kind of like a pretend temper tantrum. I would eat some and then I would have some feelings and I'd have to kind of like kick and like punch the air and have little like fake yells and stomp. And then I would go back and eat some more. And, um, and I got through, you know, I actually, I I managed to like progressively get through bigger and bigger meals until they started to look like what they needed to look like in order to, you know, actually just increase my energy. I was so anorexic that I didn't have enough energy to really like get through the day. So, um, during one of those episodes, I picked up the fork and it was like, I had this memory and it was, you know, it was a, it was a sexually explicit memory of abuse. And, um, and I had this choice, like I could either put down the fork and walk away from the meal and not eat, 
which in in many cases, like for anyone who, who's listening or anyone who's here today who is a sexual abuse survivor, like in a lot of cases that would actually be a very healthy and good choice to make. But in my case, because I was someone who was walking away from my plate to avoid feelings, I actually had to be willing. It was the only way that my higher power could actually get me to see things and face things was to move through the feelings while I was eating. So I had this turning point moment where I had to like put that fork in my mouth and eat that food and feel the feelings of being abused like while I was eating it. And um, thankfully, it only happened once. It was like, that was it. Like once I had made it through that and then I immediately... I was on my way to my meeting that day. Um, it was an it was an AB meeting in New York City on Sundays, um, and I shared about it and that and like had to go through the shame of sharing that at the group level. And then it just kind of that particular thing just popped, and I was able to move through and really like kind of get some momentum in terms of recovering from under eating. And right about the same time. Um, I realized that I was having a lot of feelings about being attracted to women and not wanting to share about it because I felt really embarrassed about it because of my history. Um, and I had to be, I had to start sharing about it at the group level. And I was going to one of these other groups for sexual abuse survivors that I was going to, um, and it was a women's meeting and, um, and I knew that if I didn't share about what was coming up for me at that meeting, I wasn't going to move forward in my food recovery, but I was terrified of sharing about it because um, I, I felt like because it was a, a meeting of, of abuse survivors that everybody would be like, oh, you can't come back to this meeting. Like, you must be attracted to all of us, you know? And I had to, and so, and I shared about it. And it was this really pivotal, I remember it so clearly. It was like the second week of June, this really pivotal moment. And it was either, you know, I had, I was going to choose, like, am I going to go back into my food addiction at this moment? Or am I going to, like, share and move forward? And, um, and I did. So, um, So that's like the biggest crux of what I've got to say on the topic. Um, things just kind of like moved forward from that point. And, um, and I guess I'll just take this out a little bit more globally, which is to say that like for me, like being someone who, identi who identifies as somewhere on the bisexual spectrum, who um, also identifies as a compulsive eater who also has a trauma history. There's a lot of things in my life that before I got into recovery, I was just running away from and didn't want to admit. And I felt like I could just, um, I was trying to live a life that would work, but also not have to be honest or go into painful feelings. And it just didn't work. I mean, it's very clear to me, like I ended up alone, depressed, isolated, anorexic, and, um, you know, just my life was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so my recovery has been about, you know, sharing about difficult, like painful past things, sharing about aspects of my identity that I just didn't want, like one more thing that I had to, you know, come out about one more thing that I had to be different about one more thing that I had to, um, you know, that was kind of earth shattering for me. And, um, and, and yet my recovery 
depends upon me being willing to do all of those things. And it continues to depend upon it. So, you know, like I can't just kind of rest on my laurels and say, oh, well, I did that. You know, like I, um, I have to keep being willing to move forward in all of these aspects of my life in order to keep the recovery that I have, um, and not kind of go backwards. So I know this is a really heavy top way to start out the, to start out this meeting, which, um, which, yeah, I, I, that's what I had to share. So, um, I think, what else do I want to say about this topic? Um, I guess I, I'll, I'll say one other thing, which is the last thing I'll say is that, um, when I first came in, um, I really wanted to be like these other really like, like hip, stylish, like young women in my AB community who, um, and I, and so one of the ways that I was trying to do that was to have their same spirituality as well. And so I think the place where I've found um, the most spaciousness has been and also like reclaiming like my own version of spirituality and how that works for me. Um, and so I really like did myself a disservice for a long time. I would hear people sharing about how higher power was working for them. And it was like, so great. And things were going great. And I was just like, why isn't that happening for me? And then what I realized it was because like, when I really looked inside, like the way that I related to God was very different from the way that a lot of the people in the room were talking. And until I started actually going out on a limb in that area too, and really saying like my higher power comes shows up to me like this and my God is asking me to do this. And, um, and it was so different from what other people in the room were experiencing. And yet, unless without being willing to do that, I, um, I wasn't getting anywhere. And so it's the same, like, it's this exact, like same kind of process that I've had to do with I'm attracted to this. I'm, I, my history is this, my way of like my higher powers way that, that they're showing me to move through this, this problem is this. And, um, by doing that and by reclaiming that it's weird because it makes me, in some ways it makes me feel like I'm, I'm more isolated because I'm having this very like individualized path, but it actually allows me to connect to all of you in a way that I can't connect to you when I'm trying to be codependent and be like you so that we can have a relationship. So I will just end with that. Thank you. Thank you. And now we'll have Mary. Let me bring this down. My name is Mary, Composable Reader. I have some pictures. So to get the numbers out of the way, I've been in these rooms since 1989. Uh, let's see, um, I'm, I lie about two things I like to say, my height and my weight. Um, I think I'm 4'10", 4'11", but I lie and say I'm 5'1". Um, my weight has been high as 250 plus. Today I'm somewhere about 170, 175. Uh, the clothes I was wearing was size 24. Today I'm wearing these size 12 pants, but it depends where you buy them. If you buy them at Walmart, you can buy smaller sizes. 
<laughs> if you buy them at like uh, those little boutique so- shops, the the sizes are uh, they're just different. So, anyways, um, I got a lot of topics to share. I got and the theme of the thing is a new freedom, a new happiness. Uh, we were told to ha- this topic here is abstinence with peace of mind, and it's an LGBT meeting. And um, so, let's see. Freedom. What freedoms do I have today? Mainly, I have the freedom from shame. In these rooms, I always felt shame, shame, and more shame. I was never enough. In fact, I thought I was adopted into my family. I thought I was a creature, that I did not belong, that I was a major deformity. And I've been listening to a lot of alcoholic podcast AA uh, recovery podcast lately and what I'm hearing over and over is how us addicts think we are so different from anybody else we never feel like we fit in I was so bad with that I didn't feel like I fit into my family and um so that just goes into the isolation, feeling alone. Today I have freedom from being ashamed most of the time. I still have these, I call them shame attacks. And I get these things where I feel like I just want to jump out of my body. And why do I like food? Because, boy, it sure takes me out of my body. And when I don't have the food, the challenge is to stay in my body, to feel the shame, to feel the feelings. And that's the challenge I have. But the thing that helps me with that is the 12 steps. The 12 steps, um, the tools, but mainly the 12 steps. In fact, I just did a big um, 12 steps on shame because I was feeling it so much. And I just did it. And, um, yeah. So I have the freedom of uh, not being frozen, not being numb in my body. Today I have that. And I have the freedom to be more myself. Uh, one thing that I never did when I was 250, I lived from here up. I never acknowledged my body. I didn't like looking at it. Um, today I have the freedom to move, to be in my body. I love exercising. I'm an incest survivor. My brother was a perpetrator. My father was a perpetrator. And so I sure did not like my body. It, it, it wasn't cool to be a girl. In fact, when I came out, I went to a therapist, and I knew I was going to come out. And I told the therapist, okay, here are my two issues I want to deal with. One, my brother's died. I can come out. My brother was a heroin addict. Victor was one of the perpetrators. I said, now that he's dead, he died from an overdose in my mother's home. I said, now I can come out. Now it's safe. And when I first came out, the whole argument was, you're gay because you're an incest survivor. And when my memory started coming up about the sexual abuse, I admitted myself to a five-week inpatient program that dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder. And there I found out there were a lot of women who were sexually abused, and they were straight as a ruler. I mean... So that kind of helped me come out. I'm gay because I prefer to be with women, and I feel most comfortable with women. I tried the men thing. I always felt so, like, fake when I was with a man. Or I just didn't feel myself. My preferences for women. And I just got to say that I, it's so amazing. I've been in these rooms since 1989. I met my wife in these rooms. And um, we just got married after 21 years of being together. 
And, and when I met my wife, I said, I remember going to this comedy show, and the woman there shared about my wife. And 21 years ago, I think I had a little shame about being gay because I told my partner, I would never call you my wife. And then it's like 20 years later, and it's like, oh, my God, what the diff? And the fact that we have an LGBT topic meeting. Like, it's amazing what 20, the changes in 20 years has brought. Uh, anyways, I'm a little scattered. Another thing, um, anyways, I'll share about that later. Um, what was I talking about? The freedom to, oh, the freedom to wear coats. I was so shame-based about being fat that it would be the coldest day. But you ask me, I wasn't cold because I didn't want to wear a coat because I would look bigger. I didn't wear jewelry because I didn't deserve to wear jewelry. So you can see there's a lot of shame about me, me being me. And um, what the 12 steps, what these rooms have given me is the hope, the thing. Oh, I forgot to share. I'm also an addict for approval, not only for food, but for approval. And I want your approval. I want you to like me. Let me tap dance till you like me. Whatever I have. Again, I can't tap dance. So, <laughs> They tell me I don't have rhythm, but I try. I try to make you happy, try to make, you know, be, you know. In fact, yeah, that was my biggest thing as a kid. To get you to like me, I would be the real good little girl, fold my hands in class and be teacher's pet and do whatever you wanted me to do. And this whole thing, when I came into OA in 1989, I remember walking to a room in San Fernando Valley, and it was all white ladies. And first of all, I didn't feel like I fit in because they were all white, and I had a lot of shame about being Mexican-American. And you guys just didn't get it, and I just cried. I just cried. And um, I've heard in these rooms that... A lot of people share about fear being their number one thing. I, I, not for me. My thing was shame. My mother was uh, very ashamed of being a woman. She was an incest survivor also. She was very ashamed of being Mexican. And she passed that on to us. And so I, I you know, I, I, I came into this room. Uh, 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 I felt like it was... Uh, round ball of brown that did not deserve to exist. And through the beauty of these rooms, the 12 steps of you guys, of love, acceptance, oh, my God. I know today, most of the times, that I'm enough. And I owe that to my higher power. I know that to my willingness to work the program. And I got a sponsor, and I've had a July 7th. It'll be two years. And I, I, I wrote down what I wanted to make to let you know. If you don't have a sponsor, get a sponsor, because I heard that for so long in the rooms, and I never followed through on that. And then I decided to get a sponsor. Talk about a woman that loves me unconditionally and was working the steps with me. And through her compassion and kindness and gentleness, I'm finding that out what it is to be kindness, gentle, compassionate. Because in my family of 10 siblings, I had five brothers and four sisters. It was dog-eat-dog -dog world. We were raised in like silos. You run for your food, you get it. I mean, we held grudges for 17 years, living in the same house. You, you cross me, you're dismissed. 
And I have that fierceness. And I have that. It was a survival thing. I know that today. It was survival. But I don't need to live there anymore. You know what I mean? I don't need to live there anymore. And I can soften my jaw muscles. All my anger, so much of the rage was in my jaw. So no wonder ice cream and cookies and cheeseburgers and zingers and all that stuff just took that thing away that I didn't have to feel. So now when I get tense or, you know, I'll do this to my jaw or I'll hold my hand over, you know, just to be in my body, to be in my body. And um, how much time do I have? Oh, great. Okay. Uh, the other thing I wanted to rigorous honesty. Yeah, I was a liar. I would make up stories just to make stories up. One time I made a story about my brother being being a vet because I thought he was kind of goofy. And a college friend asked me, hey, what does your brother do? So I just made that up. Uh, I don't know why because I don't know. But anyways, um, but I found out to do the recovery in these rooms, I have to be rigorously honest. And in fact, thank you. And uh, I was sending my um, food to my sponsor. She wanted me to commit to it in the mornings. And I found out that I was not sticking with my commitment. So I discussed it with her. And I said, look, for me, it's more important to be rigorously honest than to do the food thing. I'm not being rigorously honest, so I'm not going to do my food thing. For some reason, I'm being defiant. For some reason, I just don't want to go there right now. So I'm not, it's more important. So for me, uh, rigorously honesty is my salvation. Without it, I don't think I have anything because my commitment before anything is to be honest with myself and with programming with my higher power. And if not, if I'm, my food isn't 100%, oh yeah, I want to talk about abstinence. That's why I'm here. Abstinence with peace of mind. Um, I got that topic from Nancy. And I'll tell you a story. When I was a little kid, 12 years old, my mom so wanted it to be about a thyroid problem. She so wanted, like, please let it be thyroid. So when I was 12, she said, we're going to take you to the doctor. And then we're going to find out it's your thyroid. So the instructions for the doctor is not to eat anything. You know how they make you do not to eat anything before you go to bed at 12 hours or something. Well, at like 11 p.m., I got up and went to the refrigerator. And there was a coconut cake. And I had a wedge like that big. And I ate it because I'm a compulsive overeater. And the next morning when we went to the doctors for the x-ray, this 12-year-old kid was petrified, horrified. What will that x-ray show? And I pictured a piece of cake just like that. That's what the x-ray was going to show. And then the doctor, I was, oh, my God, the fear, the terror, the terror. Um, and the doctor, he must have known, I mean, and he just said, it's not thyroid. My mom was so devastated because although I was brown and although she was so ashamed, she wanted me to be a cheerleader. How this, how I was going to be a cheerleader, I don't know. But that's what she wanted. And, um, I did, I was not able to deliver on that, nor did I, would I ever want to deliver on that. Um, so, <laughs> 
So when I got the piece of abstinence with peace of mind, I thought of that piece of cake. And abstinence um, for me is three meals a day. No, I'm lying. That's not it. it my abstinence no um, no white flour, no sugar, to the best of my ability. And my abstinence. I'm learning is refraining from compulsive overeating and that behavior of drive-through. What I used to do is not go through one drive-through, but like three, because I would be so ashamed to order what I really wanted from the first drive-through. So I would go like two or three drive-throughs and order all my food. It would be 7-Eleven after uh, work and close the curtains and eat the full Domino's pizza. You guys know the food shit. But that's what I... I that, so my abstinence is no white flour, no sugar. Uh, sometimes I go to no wheat. Sometimes I take it back. Uh, it's not perfect. But it's with peace of mind, usually. I, I, one thing I want to say, because so, I think... Um, what I'm trying to get more to is the uh, refraining from the compulsive behaviors. That's what I really want to do. And one of my compulsive overeater behaviors is if I have a slip or if I'm uh, feeling like I didn't do it right, one of my compulsive things is to go into shame and not to, th to think I'm not enough. And that's what I'm learning from my sponsor is that this program is not about perfection because I'll never, never get it. I'll never be perfect. And it's about picking up and forgiving myself and having compassion for myself. And that's the, the, that's the biggest lesson for me because where I came from, um, it wasn't that way. It was about, you know, the, you guys have heard the saying that I felt I was a mistake. Not that I made mistakes, that I was a mistake. I was a, I was a blight. In fact, I, you know, I don't mean to say this to be dramatic or anything. Um, my partner sometimes told me, because I'm Latina, thank you, I can be dramatic, like no, the novellas. But no, this is true. <laughs> This is true. My, um, I thought it was such a blight on the world that if you looked at me, I hurt you. Like, I physically hurt you if you looked at me. And the rooms have told me that is not true. Loving people have told me that's not true. I'm learning that it's not true. The 12 steps, I'm telling you, if you haven't done the 12 steps, they're hard. Don't get me. It's hard. The other day I did it, and I was so hit with my defective character of, um, I don't even want to tell you my defective. Well, what I do is dismiss people. It's like, oh, you're not significant. Fuck you. I don't want to listen to you. And I do this, like, thing where, like, dismiss. You're gone. And um, that's not a nice defective character. And I was writing about this, and I physically felt sick because I do this a lot and I felt so sick I just had to go like to look to look at that part of myself is really really painful but when you do the 12 steps there's hope because God is forgiving God is loving you label to look at it I went and lied down, and I went and did a meditation, and God forgives me, and I forgive that part of me that did that for so long, and um, you come out the other side. 
Not to say it's easy, but if you do it, it's it's worth the stuff. Um, two things that get me going all the time, and I just got to throw this, willingness. I, sometimes I'm 50 steps from willing, like willing to be willing to be willing to be willing. So sometimes it's like that, but that's where it starts. Another thing is... Um, the whole time, the what, got, what made me stay in these rooms is take what you like and leave the rest. That's like take what you like and leave the rest. That, as a scared Mexican American, never you don't know how how that was like a ray of light for me. Take what you like and leave the rest. So from whatever I've said, take what you like and leave the rest. Thanks. Thank you, Mary. Is the basket going around still? Okay, great. And now we're going to hear from Heather. Is it better? Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I have photos also. Yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Heather. I'm a compulsive overeater. <sighs> well, I just want to say ditto. I mean, that was amazing. I don't know. We'll see what I have to add to that. Um, So I have been a compulsive overeater my whole life. Um, Welcome. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so glad you guys are all here. The fact that we're willing to take our whole weekends to be here, for me, just today, I'm really, it's touching to me. Um, So just to qualify, I have been in OA since 2004. I've been abstinent from sugar uh, for 10 years, uh, I got abstinent at the end of March 2004, and um, I was about, last time I weighed myself, and you know, I wasn't weighing myself a whole lot at the top weight, but um, I was 240 pounds, I'm down about 85, 90 pounds, and uh, I've been at this weight for about seven years, and that's a miracle, to be at the same weight for any length of time. I identify primarily as a compulsive overeater, but I'm also a um, compulsive overexerciser. I've injured pretty much every joint in my body by overexercising. I was always like the fat girl at the gym, and I was very defiant about it, like, fuck you guys. Um, I'm going to work out. <laughs> they didn't care. Um, and, uh, and I also have... Uh, orthorexia, which is like perfect food. I'm obsessed with perfect food. I have to be really careful about like, how pure can I make my abstinence? That is not the point. The point is actually, you know, what the the panel is about is uh, abstinence, abstinence with peace of mind. And the the best way I could think about that was freedom from food obsession, basically. And um, that, like, perfect food, that's not freedom from food obsession. That's crazy. It was crazy for me. Like, I'll go visit my aunt in Southern California, and she, um, she's always trying to find, like, medicinal foods. And so, like, I eat oatmeal for breakfast most mornings. And my aunt was like, well, here are oat groats, totally uncut oats. I came home, and I, I get professional. I, I don't now, but I got professional help for my food. And I went to her, and I was like, I think I need to eat oat groats now. And she said, why? I was like, but I don't really like them. She was like, you don't have to eat them, Heather. You know, but like, uh, that's my insanity. So that's what my crazy looks like. And, um, and so I'll tell you a little bit about 
you know, we're really lucky in San Francisco. We have meeting LG, we have a couple LGBT meetings, and uh, we have one meeting where people speak on sexuality and body image. So we talk about this stuff a lot, um, and it's a fantastic meeting. But um, I w- I wanted to kind of talk about like freedom from food obsession because I think that's really what we're talking about, and that's the promise of the program. That's what I want. You know, like I didn't come in wanting that. I just wanted to lose weight. And uh, I wanted to stop hating myself so much. I wanted to stop looking in the mirror and thinking I was a piece of shit. And, um, but I didn't know how much noise was in my head around food. You know, I didn't realize that I spent all my time thinking about food, thinking about the last thing I ate and how horrible I was and how no one was going to love me and how I was fat and unlovable, even though people loved me at my top weight. You know, I had a girlfriend at my top weight. So, but that didn't penetrate, couldn't get through. And, um... Or I was thinking about what am I going to eat next? Like even in the midst of eat, like this is always what I say, but even in the midst of eating, I, this wasn't working anymore. What's next? Oh, I chose the wrong thing to eat, but I'm not going to stop eating this thing, right? Like that's not going to happen. I'm going to keep eating this thing and I'm going to regret it and be like, oh, this is a bummer. It's not the right thing. So where am I going to eat next? And what's the next thing that I'm going to eat? And like all my time taken up by food. And when I um, got abstinent, I didn't realize how much I was eating. Like, you know, I come from, like, other people on the panel. Like, I come from a family of compulsive overeaters. So I really didn't think I overate. I thought, like, this is just how people eat. And that's true in my family. But it's not true in the world. And um, I didn't realize how much food it took to maintain that weight is what I'm trying to say. Like, it actually takes a lot of food and a lot of time eating and a lot of time thinking about food in order to maintain that weight. And it takes a lot of time exercising and thinking about exercising and exercising through the pain and all of that stuff in order to maintain the weight that I had. So that's what it was like for me. It wasn't, it wasn't fun, but it was, like other people said, like, how can I not be in this experience? How can I not be in this body? How can I numb out? You know, like I really like heavy fatty foods and I always used to say, well, I'm a very anxious person and I am, but I thought the food was relieving my anxiety, but it was actually sedating me. Those are not the same thing I've learned. You know, I didn't know that those are different things, but they're not the same thing. Um, So the thing that I thought of when I think of freedom from food obsession is the thing in step three, and I'll just read it in our OA 12 and 12 is... Do we ever achieve a permanent freedom from food obsession? Yes and no. OA veterans do have this miraculous freedom most days, but occasionally the obsession returns. How do we get through these times without overeating? We don't panic. Instead, we quickly reaffirm, or quietly, quietly reaffirm, our personal guidelines and ask our higher power to help us continue living within them. Then we turn away from food and eating to focus on our OA fellowship and the 12 steps. As we work the steps, using the tools of the program, a plan of eating, literature, writing, meetings, the telephone, sponsorship, anonymity, and service, we find the help we need. OA friends lovingly remind us that this too shall pass. It does pass, and our obsession is lifted again. This abstinent way of life continues on a daily basis, so long as we continue to trust a higher power with our lives, renewing our step three commitment daily. So that's really it. I mean, I've been abstinent for 10 years, and, you know, those first nine months were pretty ugly and pretty crazy because I didn't have a sponsor. What happened was... um, and the folks from San Francisco know this story ad infinitum. But um, 
my dad is a compulsive overeater, and he went into the hospital with congestive heart failure, and he was 515 pounds. And, um, you know, the doctor said this wouldn't happen if you weren't an overeater. I mean, he didn't, they didn't say overeater. They said if you weren't obese. But um, I just knew it was going to happen to me. You know, he was twice my age and twice my weight. Like, I can do that math. And so I was terrified. And so I and had already started coming to OA, so I just said, okay, I'm not going to eat sugar because everybody stops eating sugar in OA, which is not true, but that's what I thought. And... Um, I I didn't even think sugar was my problem. You know, fast food's really my problem, I thought. Um, but, you know, then I stopped eating sugar and I realized everything I was eating had sugar in it. <laughs> and, you know, like three candy bars in an afternoon because I needed energy is not really energy. So, um, so, but I was counting calories when I was first abstinent. I didn't have a sponsor because, God forbid, I tell anybody what I'm eating because fuck you guys. And um, pardon my language recording, but... Um, you know, I really wasn't willing. I wasn't willing to share my food. I wasn't willing to work the steps. I was willing to go to meet. I was willing to not eat sugar and go to meetings once a week and talk about how it was my parents' fault. That's what I was willing to do. And people let me do it. You know, thank God no one said to me, you know, girl, you better work the steps or get the get out of here. They just said, keep coming back, you know. And uh, and I did. And I um, and I eventually got in enough pain to get a sponsor and start working the steps, you know, because what I found was once you take the food away from me, I am a raw nerve, I have no skin, and I couldn't deal with life, you know. I would much rather obsess about food in my body than I would feel any feelings around my sexuality, for instance, or feel any feelings around my job or my shame. Like, I have a ton of shame. Like, I agree with what other people have said. Like, the shame is the core of my disease. And so to be willing to, like, not eat and feel both those things, like, you might as well shoot me in the head. Like, I don't want to do that. And that's where the spiritual awakening comes in, you know? Like, I have become willing to do things that would have horrified me when I came into these rooms, you know? Because I don't want to die, and I don't want to die the death of a compulsive overeater. The death of a compulsive overeater is horrifying. My dad is doing it right now. It is, it is heartbreaking. And, um, yeah, so I don't want to get distracted by that. Um, so what I want to say about – so I'll talk a little bit about the sexuality piece of it, the um, LGBTQII, <laughs> et cetera. Um, and so – I came out as a lesbian when I was 22. After four years of being a women's studies major, you think I'd figured out sooner? Uh, but no. Took me a while. And actually, when I was in college, I thought I was bisexual, and I would have people say to me, like, oh, you, everyone knows you're gay, Heather. And I was like, okay, because I had never dated anyone. You know, I was, a, I was a compulsive overeater, ashamed of my body, huge issues around sex in general. Like, doesn't matter who the person I'm having sex with is, just sex issues. Woo. And um, I came out as a lesbian having never kissed anyone, but kind of similar to what someone else said, that I knew I was attracted to girls, so let's go with that. You know, start somewhere. And so I, and I didn't date, and I didn't kiss anyone, and I didn't, like, I can see now this was all character defects of, like, wanting to be perfect before I was in a relationship, you know, and, like, convinced that, you know, I really had a lot of stuff around just, do I have the, what do I want, and do I have the right to want that, you know, like, I really believed that if I, if someone smiled at me, I had to have sex with them, 
Or if I smiled at someone, I had to have sex with them. So I didn't smile, you know? Like, I didn't smile at anyone on the street. I didn't make eye contact. I was super ashamed. And I didn't know, like, what was my part and what was other people's part. And I had a right to want or not want, you know? And so I just... um, Yeah, I didn't date for a long time. I didn't have my first kiss until I was 25. I didn't have sex until I was 27. And um, by the time I did have sex, I was so desperate to rid myself of my virginity that I just was like, whatever you want. Okay, let's do that. Let's, let's have sex on the beach. Let's, you know, whatever, you know. And, and I was just making up for lost time because I was ashamed of who I was. And I was ashamed of needing the time I needed. You know, I just needed that time. I could not have – it was really, you know – I don't tend to think of it this way, but I think it's probably true that it was really God protecting me. Like I couldn't have been in a relationship when I was any younger. I couldn't have had sex any younger. And, um, and I did a lot of things I didn't want to do, and I was in relationships with people who weren't nice to me, you know? And um, so I came into program, and I got abstinent and was crazy for a long time. And then I got a sponsor, and I flipped the switch, and I just went, I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to be the perfect OA person now. So I, like, writing down my food meticulously and calling it in and call every day at the same time, no problem, got it, you know? Like, just can I? how perfect can I be? And that worked for me, you know, like like in the sixth and seventh step, they talk about how our character defects are assets when used rightly. I needed that. That worked for me, you know. It doesn't work now. Like I have no interest in that now, but um, I still want a gold star. <laughs> Always I want a gold star. I want attention standing up here. Are you kidding? And um, it's just the truth. And um, so I came – out. I was identified as a lesbian. I got abstinent. I had a girlfriend when I came into this program and a girlfriend. I met her the night before my first OA meeting. And, um, and I lost 85 pounds while I was in a relationship with her. And having sex with someone abstinent was so hard. Like I started having, feeling vulnerable and crying during sex and remembering like traumatic experiences during sex. And then she didn't want to have sex with me. And then I had to learn to ask for sex, which was super awful. And um, I, I, I think the main thing is the sex inventory in the fourth step. The first time I did a fourth step, I studiously avoided that sex inventory. I wasn't going to do that. And um, when I did do it, I've never cheated on anyone not that I judge anyone who has because, you know, we all come in with different experiences. This is part of my story of, like, I'm a freak, actually, that I never cheated on anyone. I never – no one cheated on me as far as I know. But my entire sex inventory was I have this fantasy. And my fear is I'm afraid I'm a pervert and I'm afraid I'm straight. I'm afraid I'm a pervert. I'm afraid I'm straight. Because all my sex fantasies mostly are about men. I don't have sex fantasies about women, though I love women. And I was terrified. I was terrified. And I – Gave away my inventory, and I cried more in that inventory than I did for, with my inventory with everything else. And I um, had to learn how to ask for sex. That was my amends to myself, was to ask for what I wanted. <sighs> and, um, and, you know, and in this process, for a variety of reasons, not, re- not, enti- not really related to this, but just as part of recovery, like, my relationship fell apart. You know, and I started thinking, like, maybe I should be dating men. But I wasn't going to break up with somebody I loved on the off chance that I was attracted to men. <laughs> so, 
But that relationship ended, and after, like, about a year of mourning and crying and not being able to get out of bed and everything, I decided to start dating men for the first time in my life at, like, 36. And, um, and you know what? It really is one of the gifts of this program is the fellowship, is that going to meetings where I heard men, straight men, gay men, queer men, whatever, talk about their wants and needs and talk about what I really want is connection with another human being. What I really want is to feel loved and feel good enough. I realized, oh, my God, men are like me. Like, I really grew up believing that men were alien beings and that they weren't like me. And I had a lot of damage from my mom around sexuality. And um, I just thought men were scary and that they, you know, given half a chance, they would try to have sex with me, which is weird. Like, I thought nobody was attracted to me, and I thought I had to, like, fend off people at all times, you know. And um, and so what I did was, um, you know, it was really that experience and program that made me feel like, thank you, like I could be close to a man, you know. And so I started dating men And with a lot of support and having gay male sponsors has been fantastic for me because the gay men that I've worked with, at least as sponsors, you know, they're working on their own sexuality, you know. And there's a lot more freedom, I feel like. This is just my experience. I feel like there's a lot more freedom in the gay male community around sexuality than in most other communities. And so, you know, I was dating this one guy and he was talking about wanting to go to a sex club and I called my sponsor up and was like, he wants to go to a sex club, I don't know what to do. He said, oh, honey. You know, he's like, I've been to a million sex clubs. You know, like, I was just like, oh, good, you know, like, there's nothing I can't say, you know. And um, so I started dating men and, and I worked through a lot of stuff and I liked it. I liked dating men. And I liked women. And I wasn't sure I'd ever date women again. And so what this program has given me is the ability to learn who I am. Like, just in general, like, fourth step is learning who I am around everything and around my sexuality. And um, learning what I like and don't like. And I do a daily tenth step, and that allows me to kind of keep working through what do I like and what do I not like. And... um, and I was dating all these guys. Makes it sound like I was dating a ton of them at once, which is not true. But um, I was dating guys, and, you know, I just kept asking for what I wanted. Like, I was really living that, like, ninth step amends to myself of, like, I like this. I don't like that. I like this. I don't like that. And that was a miracle for me, you know? Like, I got to be a human being and, um, and part of the relationship and not like, oh, you like me? You want to have sex with me? Okay, whatever you want, you know? And what ended up happening is that a friend of mine, someone I'd been friends with for years, asked me out. And it was, she was a woman. And I had to work through my feelings of, like, I had a lot of just grief around my last relationship and how painful it was for that to end. And I was scared to be in another relationship with a woman. And, and I worked through it. And God bless her for sticking around through my freaking out. But, um, you know, now I'm in a relationship with a woman again. And what's true for me is that I know that I'm bisexual. And I can say that, and I can keep saying I'm a bisexual person, human being, and I am in a relationship with a woman, and I'm still bisexual. And it feels so much more true to me than when I identified as a lesbian, and I um, never quite felt right. And I always thought, well, it's because I'm femme, you know, like I look straight, so people don't think I'm a lesbian. But it really was because I wasn't a lesbian. You know, Um, and so I guess what I want to say is, you know, all of this is program, you know, 
Like all of this is recovery and it's really for me being abstinent one day at a time, being willing to like sit with that discomfort, you know, being willing to like feel like I'm coming out of my skin um, in order to stay with it long enough for God to show me whatever I need to learn from it. That allows me to be in the life that I have today and in the relationship that I have today and in the relationship with myself that I have today, you know, um, and so, I mean, I don't know. I'm just about out of time. So I, I guess I just want to say that it, this really, all of it, the sexuality stuff, it's really about how do I live in my body? How do I stand to be in my body when I'm not eating compulsively, you know, and I'm not exercising obsessively? When I'm not an obsession, you know, when I'm not an obsession, there's room for a lot more stuff in my head. And there's a reason I've been avoiding it my whole life, you know? And the gift of this program is the loving support of the fellowship, like, the people in my life who show up for me, like, when I was single and dating, I had so much shame, and just to be seen and held by my fellows, it's healing in a way that I never could have imagined. Like, I really want to be seen now. Like, I used to be, like, I want to be seen, but no, I don't want to be seen. Okay, wrap up. Um, And now I really want to be seen, and I have people in my life who can see me. And then, like, the rigorously working the steps, continuing to work the steps. I'm in three programs. I'm doing a fourth step right now, and it's not fun. Um, but it's a miracle, you know, because what we're doing here is healing. That's what I'm doing here. And, you know, I like to say in meetings that if I can feel it, I can heal it, you know. If I can feel it, I can heal it. So I just, how do I stay with it? How do I stay with it? How do I not eat over it? How do I not get sucked back into the obsession with the food? Um, and that's what the steps and the fellowship and the tools and the sponsors and my higher power. And that's what – all of that is there to support me just staying with it so I can have the life my higher power wants me to have. So um, I'm really grateful everybody is here. And, um, yeah, thanks. Okay, could um, Eddie? Can you get the basket baskets in the back for me? Thank you. Okay, um, I will now draw questions from the basket basket for our panelists. Okay. And this is for any of you who it speaks to. How do you incorporate God into your life for your program, but as an LGBT person? So how do you incorporate God into your life? Anybody? Are we we getting up? Yes. Uh, Yeah, because this is the recording. You want a time for two? Yeah, perfect. Two minutes? Is that good? Well, my parents went to Bible college, met at Bible college, and when I came out to them, they freaked out a little bit. Um, But I didn't grow up with God. I mean, I really feel like step two was really healing for me because what I got to do, what I did is I did the how questions, the 30 questions that get you through the first three steps. I did those like twice but um, because I couldn't find a sponsor to get me through the rest of the steps. But... um, What I really found in doing that was that I always longed for someone, for a higher power that loved me and cared about me and cared about everything in my life. And I had grown up in a family where people 
Like, my parents would take us to Sunday school, and then they would badmouth church all the way home, like how stupid people were to believe in God. And um, so for me, it's not really about being an LGBT person. It's more about just having that damage from growing up with really conflicting messages around God. And so I started out with... What's something greater than myself that I can't control? Well, you know, the universe, you know, (laughs) like there is a divine wisdom in the universe that doesn't necessarily mean that there's like a guy with a beard in a cloud somewhere, but that, you know, the tides work without me and like everything in the universe works without me. And so that's what I started with. And that worked for me for a really long time. And um, really the truth for me is that if I think too much about it today, I can talk myself out of it. But what I love about this program is that it's practical. If it works, like doing this hurts, don't do that. You know, like if it works and it works for me to believe that there's a higher power that loves me, that there is an un, you know, and then I have to think about what do I want my higher power to be? It's not necessarily, you know, it's not any kind of, for me, Judeo-Christian God, you know. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's how I deal with it. I just... It's really step two for me. Like, what does my higher power need to be today? Does it need to be, it needs to be something different. It needs to be something healing from what I grew up with. So. Thank you. Anybody else like to talk about that? Talk about that. Okay, hi. So this is Delyn. Um, so I guess, I guess the thing that um, being LGBT requires of a lot of us is that we shake the foundation of the faiths that we were raised in um, because of the whole like Bible versus queer people controversy and, and other, you know, ways that religion has systematically oppressed people um, with different sexual orientations. And, um, and I guess I just want to share a little story. So my, um, my, my therapist who, 12 stepped me, um, is also a little bit of a spiritual teacher and, um, an OA member. And, um, and she talks a lot about God as a gendered being. And it's kind of, um, it's been an interesting experience for me because in Judeo Christian, um, belief systems, people often think of God as being male and um, in other belief systems, people think of God as being female. And um, it's been a really interesting journey for me to kind of play with those Im- images. And not that, that God is gendered, but to think of God as a gendered being and then think of how I respond differently when I think about God as a male entity versus God as a female entity and being able to hold, sometimes that works for me to have like a male God. And sometimes it works for me a lot better to have a female God and to think about myself as um, exploring my sexuality with my God is something that I've been like working with, with, or did work with, with her and have been working with myself, um, more recently about what is it like to be a sexual being with my higher power and how does that open up my sexuality in a way that I hadn't previously even been at all able to access because of the training that I was raised with growing up. So, um, yeah, those are a couple of ideas I had. I'm going to put a couple of these together because they're very similar. Um, how does being LGBT affect your 
disease and recovery, and how can you how how can you feel safe at how can you feel safe at meetings? Does that make sense? How can you feel safe sharing at meetings, being LGBT, and how did that enter into your um, recovery? Okay. Um, I remember at my first meeting, uh, fr there was a lesbian emphasis meeting in Los Angeles, Santa Monica specifically, and I remember I grappled uh, whether to come out because I was so scared to say lesbian. That was like, <gasps> God was going to strike me, you were going to hate me. To say that word was hard. I would go, even now I have problems with it. But anyways, um, it's a process. It's a process of becoming comfortable. For me, let me change that. It was a process uh, for me being comfortable with myself as gay women. A uh, gay woman. Um, just for me, I, I, it took a while. Lots of meetings, and then, and then the um, the comfort as as I became more comfortable with me. It was more. I don't care what you think. This is who I am. That's where I am today. That I could have my family to our wedding and order the cake and do all this stuff, and I didn't. It, it's the comfort level with who I am. Thanks. Okay, so this has actually been a really big one for me, and this is um, the way that recovery has actually been, like, so incredibly amazing. Because there's just not another place in the world that I know of where I can go and share about things that I'm scared about and confused about, and people are so open and loving and accepting. So when I first started um, thinking about coming out and talking about coming out, um, I just assumed that everybody in the room was straight and that everybody hated me. <laughs> and it might, you know, if you're listening to this in a different part of the world, like I was very lucky in that I was living in two extraordinarily liberal parts of this country. Um, but I, what would happen for me is I would go to a meeting and I would say, okay, I know I need to share about this gay thing and I really don't want to share about it, but I know I have to share about it if I'm going to recover. And, um, I would say it and then I would look at you all like really fast, like, okay, what, are, like, is anybody looking at me with some like horrific, Ooh, I don't want to go near you, touch you kind of thing. And nobody did. In fact, like it, it's been a really good way of me, um, getting to check out the false beliefs that I have and the, the expectations that I have, which are not fulfilled, um, more so than in, in other, in other circles, I usually don't feel comfortable enough risking that level of vulnerability, but in these circles I have, and it's been extraordinarily helpful. Okay. Next question. Um, can you describe the freedom you feel from being abstinent and obtaining and maintaining a healthy body weight using the steps? Freedom. I 
just noticed that there's candy on the ground over there. Um, yeah, I know. I appreciate that, but it just cracks me up. Um, so uh, this is Heather again for the recording. Um, I think the freedom, you know, like my sponsor and I talk a lot about happy, joyous, and free. Like what we're doing here is trying is to become happy, joyous, and free. And to me, um, for me, and I have sponsees for whom they're – whose experience is different, but for me, abstinence is the prerequisite to even start contemplating how to get happy, joys, and free. You know, I had to get there first. Um, and that's just been my experience. Um, that lets, makes everything else possible for me. Like I had to stop eating. I had to stop eating enough to have, to be able to have the feelings and know what I was in bondage to, you know, like bondage to self, right? My self image, my like, I'm horrible and everyone's thinking about me. And, um, and you know, a lot of what I do, so I do, like I mentioned, I do a 10th step almost every day. And my process is I get up in the morning, I meditate, I do my 10th step, which I write the uh, third step prayer. I write my resentments and the fears associated with them. I write my fears in general. And then I write my gratitude list. And then I end it with the seventh step prayer. And um, I've been doing that for like seven years. And I started it way before I got to the 10th step because my sponsor was like, you need to start doing this. (laughs) But um, I... um, that's where the happy, joyous, and free comes from for me. You know, it's like um, I see what I'm in bondage to. Like I see that I'm I'm enslaved to these ideas about myself or these ideas about other people or like, you know, a big one for me is, oh, I can't say that. You know, you wouldn't think so because I'm so chatty. But I have a really hard time when it really matters with people I really care about in my intimate relationships thinking that if I say something, it'll matter, you know? And so that's a bondage, you know? So that's, that's what it looks like for me. I don't know if that answers the question. Well, I'm not at size seven. And so when I heard that question, I'm like, I'm not maintaining my uh, healthy body weight or the dream body weight, but I have been size seven before, and I felt so out of my body at that size. I was just like a bimbo, and that's how I felt. I felt like I didn't have a skeleton. I didn't have a core. I didn't have anything. Right now, I'm a size 12, like I said, not anywhere near my body weight. I'm abstinent, though, and it's not so much about the weight. It is and it isn't. We all know it is and it isn't. It's like an oxymoron kind of thing, a riddle to life. But the thing I know is this, that to be present in this moment is the gift that abstinence gives me. To be present and quiet with my higher power is the thing. I can be size 7, size 3 is my goal, wish, but who cares. But anyways, it's about... um being in my body. When I go to the gym and work out as an insta survivor that has a lot of loose skin and loose stretch marks, and I, it's a miracle. Right there, that's a miracle. I mean, um, what was the question? Abstinence with freedom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The freedom that abstinence gives me is I'm not in my head hating myself. That's the freedom it gives me.
um, how how was dating how was dating and sex and relationships different after being abstinent for a while? All right, well, after being absent for a while. For after being abstinent for a while. It's really different. Well, because before I was abstinent, before I was in program, I, um, I didn't date in the way that I date now. Like, I really had a shame that I hear from a lot of people in program, which is I thought I was disgusting, and if anyone would have me, I would like I would like to be with them, you know, and um, and I was also terrified of sex. Like I was terrified of being in my body during sex. Talk about being in your body, Whew. and um, I, you know, I just would do whatever other people wanted me to do. You know, a lot of the character defects of people pleasing and perfectionism and all of that stuff were just like the core of my relationships with other people, and so I in doing the steps and in being abstinent after being, you know, and it was interesting too, like being at this weight for a while when I, you know, when I was losing weight, my girlfriend was, she said to me at one point, like, I'm afraid you're becoming anorexic. You know, I have a lot of support and a lot of like supervision. So I wasn't in danger of becoming anorexic, but what my reason for saying is because she had a lot of reactions to the fact that I had lost a lot of weight in our relationship, and it was it was hard for her in a way, and I had this new body, quote unquote, and um, what I learned was that I'm you know I don't know I feel like this is sort of cliche, but it's true like I'm the same me, right? I have the same problems that I had when I was 85, 90 pounds heavier. Um, I just am in a thinner body, right? And so now I know people, now people know me who've never seen me at 240 pounds. And um, so it's it's sort of like masquerading, but it didn't feel like it. Like I felt like I had been, I felt grounded enough in my body by the time I started dating that it didn't feel that way. Um, and yeah, I'm a, I'm a lot more present, and I have to really like. Some, I'll finish up. Uh, someone was saying at a, a meeting the other night about praying during sex, and I pray during sex because I have a lot of character defects. I'm like, I'm in my head. Am I doing okay? Is she happy? Does she like what I'm doing? Because if she doesn't like what I'm doing, she's not going to have a good. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, like that's not fun sex, by the way. Um, <laughs> You know, and so, like, I have to, like, I still have to, so that's still there is my point. It's it's sort of nice having sex in a thinner body, and I have a lot of loose skin, you know? So, I don't know. I can talk on for that, but I won't. Okay, okay so, um, so this is a little bit of a loaded question for me because I came into recovery when I was, like, 28, so... <sighs> which was 11 years ago. So um, I was a young person and was having like young person sex. <laughs> like, like <laughs> it was, you know, like I was like really in my head about it. I thought it kind of, I, you know, I, I don't know. Like I was influenced by like what porn told me sex was supposed to look like. And, um, and I was just kind of figuring it all out for the first time. And, um, and I didn't know a lot about myself that I, as you've heard that I learned after getting into the room. So, um, 
the main difference is that I'm actually dating. Like before I got, I was in the rooms, I just, and this has more to do with sexual abuse than anything else. Um, but I was just wait for somebody to show attraction to me and then and then just kind of be like, oh, okay. And then we would be in a relationship. And so um, the biggest difference is that I'm actually just having to learn how to date and how to say, you know, I like you. And it's – which is the most terrifying thing on the planet for me to do, by the way. Literally the most terrifying thing. So – um, the other thing is, and this could just be like developmental and having been in program for so long and, um, you reach new phases of your recovery, but now like sex and sexuality is much more, um, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's almost like I was, um, I was like totally like two-dimensional about the way that I thought about sex. And now I'm actually like truly having to be vulnerable, which is just like complete like mind fuck in a way. Like it's like um, I didn't even know that that was possible because I lived my life for so long without even going there. Um, so it's a very different experience. Okay, last last section of questions here. Um, what was your experience with recovery uh, work as uh, on body image? Body body image. Can you speak to body image? Um, so I've really worked on the body image piece of it because I remember that. I just have this memory of being at the gym and being on the elliptical machine and um, looking at my body and thinking about my body and thinking about how, you know, it used to be that my, like, my boobs preceded me into the room, you know, like, I was 85 pounds heavier, a lot of that was boob, and uh, it's not anymore, and I was just like, oh, I don't have those boobs anymore, so I'm not attractive, and I just, like, stopped myself, and I thought, oh, my God, it's always my body's fault. You know, like, no matter what, it's my body's fault. And so what I've had to do and what I do is I really practice gratitude for my body because the truth about my body is that my body has continued to move after I've injured it. You know, it got bigger when I asked it to so I could keep eating. It got smaller when I stopped eating so much. It has only ever done anything I've asked it to do. You know, and so now I feel like a fierce mama bear as I talk about this because it makes me really mad that my disease does this to me. You know, that like, it's like an, my body's like an abused child. Like, all it's ever done is what I've asked it to do, and all I've ever said is, well, why aren't you like this? You know, and when I lost weight initially, I had this fantasy that I would, my body would snap back to whatever it would have looked like if I was 20 and never been fat. And that's not going to happen. <laughs> that's not the body I have. And now, you know, I just turned 40. Now, you know, I'm getting older and I'm having to look at like, oh, my skin is looser, you know, like in the way it gets when you get older. And I have to look at that and I, and I look at it and I, at first I have this feeling of like aversion. Like I don't want that. I don't want to be getting older. I'm afraid that means I'm whatever. And I have to look at them and go, that's my body. Like, that's just what I practice doing, just sitting with my body. Like, this is what my body is like today. And I, you know, it's like the dubious luxury of normal human beings is to, like, hate their body. I don't have that luxury. I have to love my body because I'm a compulsive overeater. 
and I don't have the luxury of trying to lose 10 pounds. For me, it's the choice between what I weigh now and weighing 85 pounds more or 100 pounds more. It's not the choice between what I weigh now and 10 pounds less. So that's my thank you. I once, the miracle about this program, too, is I once went on a 5K around the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. And I remember there were a group of ladies walking with us. And uh, she was saying she had lost a lot of weight. And now she could see her Netherlands <laughs> underneath her stomach. And I come from high number weight. And so, yeah, now I can see my Netherlands. And um, being 56 years old, <laughs> yeah, saggy skin. So <laughs> the body image. Um, when I got into a relationship, one of the most moving dates that we ever had was to get in the tub, and I let her touch my stretch-marked arms that I had so much shame about, the, the, the wings I have here, and, and I, and, yeah, so talk about body image is, uh, when I watch videos about people with no arms, no legs, and they're doing this remarkable things with their lives, and I say, and, my, and you know, the messages are negative in my head. You have, Your neck is too short, you're too brown, you're too round, you're pigeon-toed. I could go on and on and on with all of my defects. But you know what? This body, like someone, the panelists were sharing, it has given me so many gifts. It lets me exercise. I can move. I can walk. I, I sometimes think I have to look over here at at what it does give me than the messages I got from my mom about how it lacks. So uh, so today I like love my arms and I thank my I call her Norma. This is Norma. <laughs> I love Norma. My panza. Um, so yeah. It's now time to close the session. Let's thank our speakers, all who have done service for this session. And we have an announcement. Um, the silent auction and boutique are going on upstairs in the Scalini, Scalini room. Thanks so much. And um, blah, blah, blah. There's paper. They're talking. Okay. Um, Please, please stand and join hands as we close with the third step prayer. 